I believe that God has given each of us a mandate to solve a problem. And when we begin to solve problems, we begin to have influence because culture doesn't care who solves their problem. They just want their problem solved. So I believe that influence um, is a result of a fruit of our call, not a goal. Welcome to Eternal Leadership, a show dedicated to equipping and inspiring leaders to accomplish what God has created in them. I'm Steve Ryder, and that was today's guest, author, speaker, and true pioneer of the workplace ministry movement, Oz Hillman. Maybe you're familiar with Oz's organization, Marketplace Leaders, or you're familiar with his daily four-minute devotional, TGIF, Today God is First. Or maybe you've read one of Oz's books, like Change Agents, Upside of Adversity, or Overcoming Hindrances, to fulfilling your destiny. Oz is such a leader in this movement that this interview was one of our top 10 guests that we wanted to get when we launched. We're gonna cover a lot in this interview, but one of our biggest focuses is adversity. Take a listen to this show because if you know anyone that's going through a really, really rough time, please share this interview with them. It's such an encouragement to me and just reminds me that the trials we go through, they have a purpose. I don't want to say any more, so here's how my co-host John Ramstead and I started this conversation with Oz Hillman on this edition of Eternal Leadership. Steve, today on Eternal Leadership Podcast, we have a great friend, Oz Hillman. Oz, welcome to the program. Good to be with you guys. John, I know this is one interview that I have been looking forward to really since the day that we started because in preparation and learning about different books, resources, speakers, about leadership and Christianity, faith in the workplace, Oz was one name that came up in many, many books that I read and many internet searches. So this is going to be a good one. Well, Oz, I remember when I first met you, I remember I, uh, it was at the, the Pinnacle Forum National Conference. And I went straight up to you and I said, you know, as I spent two years in a hospital bed recovering and was just trying to figure out this whole faith thing, I've, actually it was your devotional that I found that was coming out every day that I would read every day that was one of the most uh, inspiring, equipping um, things that was just part of my life. And I, I just want to just, in, in front of our whole audience, just personally thank you for what you're doing and what you're putting out there because I know it has meant a huge it's been huge for me personally. So thank you, my friend. Well, John, thank you. It's uh, You never know how God's going to use something. I wrote that during uh, a, a season of adversity in my own life. And uh, really, I wrote it for myself. As I tell others, I said, you know, I was writing for me to try to get through that tough time. And and I just started sharing it with a few people on my, my email list. And uh, they started responding. And then the, an Internet site got a hold of it and you know, took it around the world, and I started hearing from people around the world, and, and you know, here we are, 130 or 50,000 subscribers later. <laughs> well, I I love, you know, it's so, and we were talking about this before we started the podcast, you know, there's so many people out there that are just, you know, in a season of their life, you know, they're they're just trying to figure out how do I make an impact? You know, what, what they have no idea what little things could grow into, like you're talking about, you touched my life, we didn't even know each other, and and then you just said 150,000 other people are, are reading this. And that's so, that's awesome. And just a, a little background, I'd love you to tell your story. But for people that aren't familiar with you, uh, I know you started uh, Marketplace Leaders. 
And now that's an organization where you're helping men and women uh, really discover uh, God's purpose in their life through work, through the marketplace. That is really your ministry, and that is a, a big focus of what we're doing here. In the past, you've been very successful in business, uh, advertising agency. Currently, you're, you're speaking around the world, and you're working on a number of different projects now that we're going to get into. And you've been on CNBC and NBC and New York Times, and so I could go on and on, but just really proud of who you are and in your friendship, and I'd love to get started uh, for you to actually kind of fill in for the people that aren't familiar with you, just kind of your story. Um, and I know you've had some real highs and lows along this journey. Yeah, uh, I uh, I started uh, uh, with a family of five kids, and uh, the first crisis that happened was when my father uh, died in an airplane crash when I was 14. Um, as uh, I got older, uh, we were a church-going family, but uh, none of us really knew the Lord. But that was that accident really caused my mom to come to know Christ in a very personal way. As I got uh, older, I I, uh, I was a good uh, junior golfer growing up, <laughs> and uh, I played tournament golf. And I knew early on that I wanted to be a professional golfer, and. Um, I went to school on a golf scholarship four years to University of South Carolina, but um, didn't continue to progress like I had hoped to. And uh, that was the one thing that uh, was my idol that God used to actually draw me into relationship. And so at 22 years old, a year out of college, I accepted Christ through that first crisis. And uh, so I would uh, have my life transformed from that experience and have never looked back since then. And uh, God has uh, really become an incredible friend and, and partner in, in everything I've done. And uh, But fast forward many years, 1980, I went to Bible school thinking I was called to be a pastor uh, because I was so passionate about serving God and yet realized that was not what I was called to do. After a four-month school, came back, worked for a church for a little season, Luckily, they fired me, and I ended up uh, going into business and uh, had several different types of uh, things I did until ultimately I landed at an ad agency and, and found a niche there that I really enjoyed doing as an account executive and marketing guy and strategic planner type person. And uh, I was there a few years before I started my own ad agency in 1982. And uh, we had some very fine clients. We had American Express, uh, Green Card. We had uh, Steinway Pianos. We had Parisian department stores. We had Thomas Nelson Publishers and a number of other clients. And so we were a good small ad agency, uh, kind of a boutique, if you will. But 1994 was a turning point year for me after doing well for 12 years. All of a sudden, I had one client come and say he was going to fire us. He is 80% of our business and uh, stuck me for $140,000. Within a few, that same time period, I had uh, investments on the East Coast and West Coast and a guy, investment manager, called me and said, I'm sorry to tell you, but all of your investments are gone through a Bernie Madoff type of situation. So I lost a half million from that. And my wife came in and said, I want to separate. We had been in challenging situations for several years and so she did and so life went from one place to a whole nother place 
had a vice president leave me, take my second largest account. So 1994 March started me into an incredible season of pain and adversity and failure. And I I was didn't know what was up. You know, I, I was very strong in my faith at the time. I was giving money to Christian causes. I was doing all the right things, I thought, yet I had some struggles at home. And so for two years, I struggled with that. And uh, it was two years into that adversity that I met a man named Gunnar Olson. Gunnar Olson was the founder of the Christ- International Christian Chamber of Commerce. At that time, they were in 75 countries. And um, I heard a tape by Gunnar, and it said, God is raising up Josephs all over the world, and it's often signified by them going through extraordinary adversity in their business and personal life. And I said, my goodness, I need to, I need to meet this man. And so mm-hmm. I found out he was going to be in Washington in two months. I flew up to Washington not knowing if he would see me, but he was so gracious, he allowed me to go up to his penthouse suite the very night of his 75-nation conference, if you can imagine that, and allowed me to talk with him. He listened to my story and said, Oss, you have a Joseph calling on your life. You have probably made some mistakes, but what you need to realize is the call is bigger than the mistakes. And that day, I walked in with you know, real shame and failure, but I walked out with a call and a whole different perspective on what I was walking through at the season. That day, he became my spiritual father, and for the next seven years, he would uh, communicate by email, and we'd stay in touch. Seven years to the to the month, I got restored of all my finances through a windfall of money and uh, didn't restore my marriage. I would end up going through a divorce. And uh, But during that seven years, God birthed what I'm doing today and turned me into a writer and wrote the devotional during that time. Now, I just finished my 15th book and have ministered in 25 countries, and the devotional goes to 104 countries. So God turned my Valley of Acor, as it says in the book of Hosea, chapter 214, into a door of hope uh, for me and for many others. And so... Here I am, uh, almost 20 years. We just celebrated last year, our 20th year in ministry, and he certainly has turned a lot of that pain into something that's usable in the kingdom. Oz, I don't know if our listeners were able to really hear the, the emotion that was in your voice, but we could actually see your face. And as you talked about that dark season, man, tears were welling up in your eyes. You, you, you described a two-year window where you were really struggling. And, and I, know for, I know for a fact right now, we have listeners right now where they're going through something similar. Uh, getting with your mentor, who ended up becoming your mentor, was, was an important milestone for you. What kind of encouragement can you give to people that are right there, right in the thick of feeling like they're losing their business, losing their marriage, losing their kids? Yeah, so it's so um, wonderful when God provides a person that has a perspective on your situation that, you know, very few people. I mean, I've never run into a person who had an understanding 
of, of the call of God that way, you know, most of us will go into a local church and they'll just say, okay, we'll pray for you, brother, and they'll wait till you get healed before they're ready to, you know, come back and have fellowship with you. And so I think it's important for us to walk with people through their pits. I, I run into people just like myself all the time. People are calling me all the time. People are writing me and saying, you know, you are my gunner. <laughs> And so that's why we, you know, some of the things that we do in our ministry is really focused to some of those people in the pit and help them navigate that. But one of the things I realized going through that season is that it definitely was a training ground. I think, you know, anytime we have victory over something, it becomes our authority to minister to others. And it's really payback to the enemy of our souls. Uh, when we have that victory. It's a, a way we can give him some pain. <laughs> <laughs> and I think God uses that to raise us up to be real change agents and to be influencers. But he's got to get the Egypt out of our life first. And so many of us in business have learned a way of doing business that's of the world and not of the kingdom. And so what does it look like to really manifest the presence of God? in the area of our calling. If I heard Gunnar say that to me one time, I must have heard it a thousand times. He said, how are you going to manifest the kingdom of God in that endeavor? And uh, it's, it's taking, you know, that relationship to a different level in our business call. Well, Oz, I think you're bringing up such a great point, it's, and it's so stark today, just looking across the landscape here in business, especially here in, in our country. You know, the secular and the sacred are, there's like this iron curtain that's just descended between the two. And how did we get so disconnected? And what, what is God's vision for what that really should look like? You know, I was first introduced to a book by Os Guinness, another Os, not many of us around, uh, called The Call. Mm -hmm. And uh, in that book, he gives us the answer to that question. And it it all began in 300 A.D. Uh, with something called the Catholic distortion. And that's where uh, there began to be a preaching that this is spiritual and this is not. This is sacred. This is not. And we began to create this dualism of call. And so as a result of that, those in the workplace felt like second-class citizens spiritually. In 1200 A.D., the Protestants contributed to this when we said, basically, um, your work is a place to collect a check instead of being a calling. And so we further secularized it. And so as a result of that, many of us feel like we're second-class citizens. We think that work is less spiritual in our activity. Uh, we are often accused of uh, people who are just focused on making money until there's a building program, then that money making is very spiritual mm -hmm. because then we can help build something. <laughs> so I think that um, this is the core issue. And so we, we really need to understand God's view of work and how spiritual it is. I mean, look at Jesus. He spent, thir you know, he was up until 30, he was a carpenter and he recruited 12 from the marketplace and so his whole ministry was around people who worked every day. And he also encouraged people 
to work to support themselves during his ministry. Absolutely. So, you know, if we're thinking about that, uh, you know, this disconnect has become so broad and, and misunderstood. Uh, what, what, how would you explain almost the theology of work or the biblical view of the marketplace as a calling? I think that we need to look at work in two dimensions. One, that the work itself is ministry. Uh, you know, God made every human being to have a unique DNA. And what that DNA did was it made each of us have a bent or desire to do something different. And I believe that was the creativity of God so that we would all go in different vocations in order to meet human needs. I mean, what would it be like if all of us were going to be plumbers? We wouldn't want to go to the dentist for that. And so, thankfully, we all have different vocations. And then this idea of work being ministry you know, I was telling you guys before the broadcast that I had a funny story with Peter Wagner one day. Peter, back when in the 90s, when I was really kind of being a leader in this category, Peter had lunch with me, and Peter's a, a, a Christian leader in the body of Christ and a theologian himself and uh, was in missions and so forth. And so he comes to me, and we have lunch, and he says, uh, so tell me what you mean by uh, work is ministry. How can you say that? You're not sharing the gospel every time you work. I said, you don't have to. Colossians 3.23 says, whatever you do, do unto the Lord. It's the Lord Christ you're serving. Yeah, but you're not really sharing the gospel when you do that. And so we had this discourse back and forth. We literally had an argument. And uh, we agreed to disagree. And then a few weeks later, I was at a, a Christian trade show. I was walking down the aisle and Peter raised at me. He yelled at me in the in the aisle. He saw me and he said, "Us, us." He says, uh, "You were right. You were right." <laughs> so I went over to see what he was talking about, and he says, "Work is ministry, but it's not necessarily by what you said. It's because of this Greek word called diakonia, which means that ministry and service." come from the root word diakonia, and that's what makes it ministry, that when you serve others with a motive to glorify God, that's what makes it ministry. And so it was the first time I'd ever won an argument with a theologian. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, and, and I think that's one of the things, one of the credits to Peter is, is he's very open that, you know, hey, what he believes right now, if God shows him, or somebody persuades him through God's word that he's willing to change his his beliefs. I love that about well, the guy. Well, that's very true. He's a humble guy, and, and yet uh, he's a very smart guy, and I, I really yes. like him. Going further in this idea of work as ministry is that um, it, uh, you know, work and worship come from the same root root word, avodah. It's a Hebrew word, and so. You know, we, we saw that best expressed in the Chariots of Fire when Eric Little, the Olympic runner, said, when I run, I feel his pleasure. When I run, I feel his pleasure. So he was worshiping God, even though he was going to be a missionary to China. He understood there was value in running as well because he saw God in his running, that God had equipped him to do that. And so he was 
seeing it, the spiritual aspect of that as much as he saw himself being a missionary. The second part of this is work to minister. So often God will give us a platform to build relationship with other people. Um, and uh, it can be also a place to give. Deuteronomy 8.18 says, I'll give you the ability to create wealth in order to establish my kingdom. And so that's why God made us to create wealth. And then to care for the poor in Leviticus uh, 19.9, it says that Boaz left the gleanings behind in his field so that the poor could come and work his field. That was the way they dealt with the poor, successful business people, farmers. They left something behind and were able to allow the people to come and work it and actually get what they needed. And then finally, for societal transformation. So when you, when you see these all elements of, of a theology of work, what you find is that it's all wrapped around Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, do heartily as to the Lord, not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. It's interesting that God uses that word inheritance in that verse. Uh, inheritance is mentioned more than 237 times in the Bible, which means that when God mentions something like that that many times, we should take note. A lot of people say, why do I care about inheritance? I mean, we're going to get up there and just throw our crowns at his feet anyway. Well, I don't know. It's important to God, so it should be important to me. There's something about realizing that what we do on earth is going to receive, we're going to actually be uh, honored through uh, an inheritance when we get there. And uh, I imagine uh, we're going to have mansions that might relate to some of that. So, um, so that's how I see the whole idea of work. So now to now pull those two together, uh, in, in a post that you just put up there, this really jumped out at me. I'd love to talk about how we as leaders bridge this gap for us personally and then really the next generation. Um, the stat that you have is 84% of Christians who are 18 to 29 years old admit they have no idea at all how the Bible applies to their field or their professional interests. And I would guess if you surveyed folks our age, Oz, uh, that the numbers are probably not that dissimilar. So what, what do we do to pull these two together to integrate kind of the, the theology of work and the mindset that's prevalent today? Well, I think we did have a, an awakening in the 90s around this whole area of faith and work, and a number of organizations birthed during that time and uh, are serving uh, men and women in the body of Christ to help them understand that. Uh, we actually can see the, the how this developed over decades, you know, back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. It was all about evangelism in the workplace. It was white-collar executives getting saved. They'd go into their local church and say, what do I do? And the pastor didn't know how to deal with them. Uh, and so they ended up starting these ministries like Full Gospel Businessmen and Businessmen's Fellowship and CBMC. But they were largely evangelism, the gospel of salvation. And it wasn't until the 80s where groups like the International Christian Chamber of Commerce said, okay, what's the theology of work? How do I apply the Word of God to how I do my work, not just for evangelism? And so we had a, a decade there, and then we got into the 90s, and we began to see 
Peter Wagner and Billy Graham and and uh, Ed Silvoso and a number uh, Henry Blackaby, folks like this saying there's a move of God in the workplace. And they began to see the importance of community transformation as it relates to to this theology of work. And so we were in that for a season. And so then we started seeing more programs inside the local church to equip men and women inside the local church. And uh, then we had the Seven Mountain message that came out in, I would say, in the early 2000s with Lance Wall now. And Lance and I began doing conferences together. And uh, I think we're still in that season where many uh, leaders are trying to understand what's the what is the strategy of the Seven Mountains? And, and Can you explain we, a little bit about what that vision was for the Seven Mountains? Yeah. For folks that, that aren't familiar with it? Sure. The, the Seven Mountain message is, is really goes back to 1974 where Bill Bright and Lauren Cunningham met each other for the very first time. And, and during their meeting, God had spoken to them uh, that very week and said, if we're going to influence culture, we have to influence these seven areas of business, government, arts and entertainment, family, uh, um, um, media, um, the church. You know, these there's seven areas that most define what we believe in the culture. The other important thing that we discovered in that was that we uh, we realized that it only takes three to five percent of a leadership at the top of a cultural sphere or mountain to actually shift that mountain. And the best case studies we have of that is the gay rights movement, where we have less than 2% of the population has dictated to the 98% what they should believe about this issue. And they've done that very effectively by using arts and entertainment, media, and education to shift the argument from being a moral issue to being a civil issue. And so here you have an entire movement uh, of people who were passionate, radical, and and well-funded and unified to actually shift an issue uh, that is based upon a lie. And that lie is that I'm born this way, and we know that they are not. And so it's amazing. It's probably I've, – I've written about this a number of times and say I think that's the greatest PR success story in the last hundred years <laughs> of shifting an entire population about an issue from being a moral issue to being a civil issue. But it's rooted in an untruth, and uh, yet society has bought that. You know, some of these mountains that are – so dominated by people that are, you know, really antithetical uh, to what uh, to a relationship with Christ and in and, and that view, you know, media, entertainment, education, government in a lot of places. You know, what can we do as leaders in business, right? A lot of people don't see how they can, you know, as a marketplace leader, how can I really have an impact? How can I have an influence? They want to. Uh, you know, we all get around and just talk about the problems, and it's hard to come up with solutions. And well, yeah, I think that uh, in the last few years, I've really been impressed uh, to see that the answer is clearly in who Jesus was. Jesus, uh, one of the main characteristics Jesus had about his life and his lifestyle was he solved problems. 
every time you come in contact with him, he solved the problem, whether it be a blindness issue or a fishing problem for Peter or a tax problem for Peter or the the woman at the well or the the prostitute that was about to get stoned. In every one of those situations, there was a problem, and Jesus found a way to solve the problem. So what I realize is that we have influence when we solve problems. And I believe that God has given each of us a mandate to solve a problem. And when we begin to solve problems, we begin to have influence. Because culture doesn't care who solves their problem. They just want their problem solved. Look, uh, we've got a political thing going on right now. And one of the candidates is talking about how he's going to solve problems. And the more a person talks that way and it's believable and he actually does it, the more influence he's going to have. So I believe that influence uh, is a result of a fruit of our call, not a goal. And so I think we've got it all wrong in the body of Christ. We could turn this thing around overnight if we just had a different perspective on how we're looking at things. We become critics of culture instead of solution solution solution, solution providers to the culture. I, I couldn't agree more with that. So, you know, the uh, definition that John Maxwell has about leadership that I, I really like, that, that leadership is influence. So that begs the question, as leaders, how do we get or earn the right to have that influence? So what, how would you state uh, or share, what are the attributes of a Christian in the marketplace as a leader that allows them to build that influence, be that solution provider, to be able to make those cultural changes that, that bring back territory? Well, back when we were in the 90s and there was this whole publicity thing, and that's when I was on a lot of media talking about Christians in the workplace. The New York Times called me one day and said, we're doing a story on Christians in the workplace. It was going to be a cover story in their magazine on, in sun, on their Sunday paper. And I said, wow, that's pretty amazing. And uh, they said, we need someone to build this story around. Could you help us uh, do that? And so I said, yeah, I can help you do that. And so they interviewed me, and they called me a second time. And then the third time they called and said, okay, we've got the story about ready. But a number of us in our office have asked a question that we thought you might be able to help us with. And the question is, what makes a Christian different than a non-Christian in the workplace? And I thought, well, that's a very good question. And so I thought for a moment, and I said, I believe there's four things to that. And the first one is excellence. And uh, I think God calls us to do our work with excellence, even more so than a non-believer, because it says in Daniel chapter 1 that Daniel did his work 10 times better than anyone else. I believe we've got to stand out. We've got to be so different that we attract the world and they want to know what makes you different. Why, why, are you, why do you serve people like that? Why do you have that kind of attitude? Why are you so good at what you do? The second thing well, is that, that makes me think of the Joseph calling you talked I was about just before. Just about to say the same thing. Joseph prospered in the midst of great adversity, whether it be in Potiphar's house or it be in the prison. I mean, yeah, I put, my, I put myself in his shoes, and boy, he had every excuse in the world not to be putting in that kind of work and and, and rally the way he did. 
And that's exactly what we're talking about. It's that he had influence because he solved the problem for Pharaoh. Mm-hmm. So then the second area is integrity, that the Bible speaks in Psalm 51 that God desires truth in the inward parts. You know, that psalm is a psalm about David who had an integrity problem at the time when he uh, slept with Bathsheba. And so he's learning and he's repenting and he says God wants integrity in the inward parts. And so what he what that says is that are we the same person in public as we are in private? Are we a hypocrite? You know, do we have one life out there and one life at home? And so it's important that we have integrity of heart. You know, the, I was working with as many leaders as as you've worked with in the marketplace. You know, what are some areas of integrity, you know, because people outside the, you know, if they're looking at you as a Christian leader. I, w- I would think that's an area that a lot of people probably stumble on because it's just a lot of common practices in business today, um, you know, from expense reports to how you're doing contracts to how people are trying to win deals to even how they handle their, their payments and accounts receivable. I don't think fall in line with that very often from just my own personal observations. One of the things I tell leaders is I ask them, what's your position? What's your brand? And they say, they look at me kind of funny. I say, well, let me ask you this. Are you on time for meetings? Do you pay your bills on time? Do you treat your wife well? Are you known for the integrity you do in business? I said, all these things add up to your brand. I can tell you that once I spend time with you, and if I learn that if I have meetings with you over several months and I notice that you're going to be late, what do I end up doing? I end up being late because I know you're going to be late. You've built a brand. You've told me what your character is. And that goes for any type of thing that you do, whether how you handle your money, how you handle your clients, whether you pay them on time. All of these things contribute to that integrity issue. Yeah, thank you. That's illuminating. Uh, you know, I had a, a coworker I worked with, and whenever he had to change something in his schedule or something came up that was more important, one of the things he had his assistant do for him was tell his, the people he was rescheduling with that one of his clients had a death and he wasn't able to make it. He'd make something up. He he wasn't being truthful. And I, I think just little things like that, you lose it's not, you know, not only just your integrity, but you're not operating in excellence. And then you lose the ability to have any influence because people see that character and in, in where it's coming from. Yeah, and I think it, it, it happens in a lot of the small things. You know, if you tell somebody, I'll call you, do you actually call them? <laughs> uh, let's get together in two weeks or so. do you ever get together? I mean, I think that those little things, you'd be amazed at what people will conclude about the little things that we don't follow through on. That's, that is a, that's a great point. Now, what was it you were about to start into the kind of the third or your next principle? Yeah, the, the third uh, attribute is servanthood. And uh, Jesus said, if you want to be great among them, you must be servant of all. And it's interesting that when Jesus did his first miracle, it was the servants who saw that miracle. It wasn't the people in the wedding. It was the people behind the scenes. And so often when we're behind the scenes serving and investing in others, that's where we see the miracles. That I mean, I get to see a lot of miracles in the lives of people because I hear testimonies of people and how the devotion has impacted their life or some other 
you know thing that we've done and and uh it's it's really amazing uh, uh some of the miracles that I get to see but um it's all rooted in servanthood the th- the fourth attribute is miracles and it says in acts chapter 5 that the apostles did many miraculous signs in the public colonnade where the people could see them and you know that's uh that's pretty interesting because so often uh, we go to church and we think that's where the miracles are, but almost all of the miracles, over 80% of the miracles in the book of Acts were done in the marketplace. Uh, Jesus didn't take people to synagogue to get them healed. He healed them out in the marketplace. He didn't take them to the synagogue to get saved. He dealt with them right where they were. And so I think uh, really Jesus models what we should all be doing. You know, it's interesting. We were our men's group that I'm a part of. We've been talking about that. We were actually talking about how God answers prayers. And all of us are uploading prayers all the time. But you know how God answers prayers is through the saints down here, through the church, which is us as individuals. So, you know, it's been our, what we've been doing for the last six months is praying every day, Lord, help, you know, show me a miracle today. Help me be part of answering somebody else's prayer. And, and to a man, we were talking about it this morning, uh, was why this is so front of mind. Every single one of us have stories almost daily where God is just nudging us, urging us, bringing us into somebody's life, something at work, a situation where somebody tells us later, you know, I was praying about that. I'm, I'm blown away that you called today or that you reached out or that you did this. And I love that. So that's as an attribute, you're seeking to be somebody God is using in the marketplace to answer the, the prayers, the hopes, the wishes, the dreams. Because, you know, we all have people working for us that are believers, non-believers. But every one of them has things that are very important to them that that we need to be connecting to and be aware of and be serving them toward. I think the most, for the most part, the body of Christ doesn't understand the authority that we've been given in Christ. When Jesus prayed the Lord's prayer, he said, he prayed that heaven would come on earth. When Jesus left the earth, he told the disciples, now I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom and uh, whatever you bind on earth be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth, be loosed in heaven. So I'm basically turning earth over to you while I'm gone. And I want you to represent my interest while I'm here. I want you as a believer to bring heaven on earth. So what does it look like to bring heaven into a for-profit business? What does it look like to bring heaven into a very depressed area? Uh, what does it look like to bring heaven into a city? And so I think that he delegates that authority. So it's like God gives us the power of attorney until he comes back, until he takes back the keys. And so what we have to do is understand that um, a covenant promise has been given to us. There's over something like 7,400 covenant promises in the Bible. A covenant promise is the currency of faith. And so whatever God says, that's a covenant promise. We claim that promise and we pray it into existence in order that it might be manifested on earth. One of the reasons that I think that people get woken up in the middle of the night is so that God can 
you know, fulfill something on earth, but he needs a human being to pray it because he's delegated the authority to you and I. So that's why it's so important that you and I play such an important role on the earth that he wants to use human beings. You know, sometimes he intervenes, but as a rule, he's going to use human beings. So when you say delegated that authority, what authority exactly has he delegated to us? Because what's really jumping out at me is, you know, uh, these concepts, and I think a lot of people, you know, uh, just in the culture, this is kind of a paradigm shift. This isn't some future promise. This isn't going to be when Christ comes back. This is now. It's operating actively in the present, and it's ongoing. Well, when Jesus uh, said, you know, when he leaves, he's going to send the Holy Spirit. And when you get the Holy Spirit, you're going to be able to do greater works than me. And that is uh, that means that you're going to have the authority of God to be able to do those miracles. It's not a reigning over people. It's using the spiritual authority of the Holy Spirit to be able to pray things into existence, to be his witnesses on the earth, to be able to share the gospel, to be able to solve problems. That's what I mean by authority, not to dominate another person, but to represent heaven on earth. So you know, as we as we wrap up here, Oz, as people are listening and they're they're they've they've heard this whole conversation, uh, they're wondering, okay, how what do I do next? I, I want to be that solution provider. I want to you know work on these characteristics of a leader that you shared, bring that into the marketplace. Uh, I'd love if you have any stories or just thoughts on people you've worked with who've who've made that shift, brought kind of the secular and the sacred together and, you know, how they can do that successfully and, and what can come out of that? Well, I tell people that one of the great ways you can start, no matter where you are, is simply starting to read the TGIF devotional. And your listeners can get that at todaygodisfirst.com. And the devotional has an amazing ability, and it's nothing about me, but the Holy Spirit seemed to have used it to help people uh, understand the walk with God, understand the adversity, understand how to apply the Word of God in their own circumstance. I had a powerful story um, not long ago where a man uh, called me. He was a former client of mine, and he says, Oz, um, do you write some kind of devotional? And I said, yeah, I write this devotional. I hadn't talked to this man in 10 years. He says, well, I have a friend in England, and he's a very, very successful man. In fact, he was the, the in the top 10 wealthiest businessmen in the UK. And he went through a very, very difficult time. He lost his money, over $500 million. He lost his health. And he tells me that somehow he came across your devotional. And he says it changed, it saved his life during that season. Mm. And so he says, I, he would like to talk to you. And so he, this man calls me and uh, tells me his story. And the way he got my material was his gardener. He had a Rolls Royce at the time. His gardener made a photocopy of one of my books and gave it to him. He read it. And then, as a result of that, his wife researched me on the web and found the devotional, and he started reading the devotional, and he says it got him through an extremely difficult time. So you never know the people you're going to touch or how it's going to 
uh, impact a life. But it's all about being faithful to the small things. Uh, when God shows you to do something, do it. Uh, you don't know what the fruit of that's going to be, but you need to be obedient to whatever he calls you to do. So uh, how can people find you? You've talked about a couple of your resources. One of the things uh, that Oz has made available to all of our listeners is the, the first chapter of a great book called The Upside of Adversity. We have all been through sig- significant adversity you had seven years in the pit, and out of that has birthed what you're doing today. So thank you for being so generous with that, Oz. We really appreciate it. And, and how can people get in touch with you, your new radio program, your teachings, your devotional? Well, our main website is marketplaceleaders.org, marketplaceleaders.org, and uh, that has all of our resources on it. In order to get the first chapter of the book, they need to go to UpsideOfAdversity.com. That's UpsideOfAdversity.com. And there they'll have an opportunity to receive that along with the download of an audio presentation as well as uh, frequently asked questions on navigating the pits of life. (laughs) Well, in that audio, uh, Overcoming Shattered Dreams and Disappointment with God – and I'm sure that was birth of that very difficult time that you went through and could be very helpful to some of the people listening to this who were, like Steve described before, right in the middle of this messy middle. Yeah, I um, I think that God, uh, because I've gone through some adversity through my life, um, He's given me some insights into the processes. You know, I think that it's really important to understand, I think, why you're going through adversity. Sometimes it can be because of our own thing. Sometimes it has nothing to do with what we've done. It can be a consequence of the call of God on our life. And sometimes it can be a mixture of that. And so um, some of these resources will help people who find themselves in that place to be able to understand how to walk through those seasons. If you'd like to learn more about us, his books, his teaching, just go to eternalleadership.com slash zero eight. That's eternalleadership.com slash 083. And there in our show notes, we'll have those links as well as a link to sign up for the TGIF email devotional that John mentioned early on, as well as the Change Agent Network, the online community that us created. In it, there are archived teaching, webinars, teleseminars, and community amongst the members. All that and a lot more on the Change Agent Network. I highly recommend that you check out joining Oz, myself, and a whole bunch of other leaders in this workplace ministry movement. And if you join, it's a great way to support this show as a portion of your monthly membership goes to pay for the costs associated with running Eternal Leadership. That link, check it out. EternalLeadership.com slash 083. By the way, when we finish this interview... Oz told us a story about being faithful in the small things during the darkest season of his life. Normally, I'll edit stories like that into the show, but this one felt like it would be such an encouragement to people that we're adding it as a podcast extra into the feed. It's it's a short story, about two and a half minutes long, and it's one that I've thought about nearly every day since he told it. Be sure to look for that in the podcast feed, and if you like it, Please share it with someone that's going through some really dark seasons. Both John and I have been through the fire the last few years, and we really have a heart to reach those people and give them hope. 
If you are going through some dark seasons yourself, be sure to reach out to us and let us know how we can pray for you. John and I meet on a weekly basis to pray about this show, our businesses, and for you in the audience. We'd love to know who you are, your story, and how we can be lifting you up. You can email me, steve at eternalleadership.com. Next time on Eternal Leadership, another pioneer in the workplace ministry movement, Rich Marshall. We all expect ministry to happen on our timetable. And uh, we think, wow, now that I... I understand this. I can go in and, and make a difference in my in my business immediately, and they get discouraged because it doesn't always happen immediately. Uh, ministry sometimes takes a long time to have impact, and and oftentimes you don't even you you never see the impact that you've had in people's lives. So there's a discouragement that can come, and it's because of expectations. Uh, our Christian culture speaks of. What is your success rate? And if it's not there, you're not really making it. Rich lives here in Colorado between John and myself. And every time I get together with him, it's like sitting at the feet of a great in the faith. For John Ramstead, I'm Steve Ryder, and thank you for listening to Eternal Leadership.